Do you know what God has intended from the beginning of time? To create a bond that looks like it's always been together. And when we pursue peace and we fasten, we're fastened by that peace and we cleave and hold to one another, do you know what God will show the world? The beauty of the gospel through the people of God. I'm Kyle Grant and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry. And I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. This morning we look together in the book of Ephesians at the hinging point of the book, where it where it fundamentally changes right in the middle. And I say fundamentally because Paul is going to move from the indicative, you say, well, what does that mean? Indicative is the stated truth to the imperative, what to do because of that truth. And I I told you we've been working towards this, where Paul begins this foundation in chapters 1 through 3, and he lays this doctrinal, theological foundation, and then the living, what we do with it, is really laid out in chapters 4 through 6. And so this is an important message because the book transitions, not in its theology or in its truth, but in its primary content or its focus of content would be a better way to say that. And it's an important and it's an important text because Paul is going to give us in our text which is verses 1 through 3 we have a small text this morning the the primary command that he's going to build on in chapters 4 through 6. And so if we're really going to get chapters 4 through 6, we, we have to make sure we get chapters 1 through 3. And, and that's why we, we went through it in such detail, and I hope that you do understand it. But like every week, and more importantly than any other week probably up until this point, it is important today to review so that we really understand that foundation. Now ideally, as the pastor, as the one who's been teaching this, I would be able to ask you to give me the primary content in chapters 1 through 3, but don't worry, I won't. Obviously, you know, Paul states very plainly what the focus of chapters 1 through 3 is in two words, in two words, two small words, in Christ, the primary doctrine of chapters 1 through 3 is what Paul explains that God has done in Christ. You say, well, what do you mean? It's made very plain in this long sentence in chapters 3, in, in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. This incredible, doctrinal, uh, theological, rich, deep sentence, the longest sentence in all the New Testament that we spent uh, many weeks in, just in this one sentence. Paul makes it very plain where all of these blessings, the blessing of predestination, the blessing of adoption, the blessing of redemption, 
the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of the inheritance, the blessing of the sealing of the Spirit, how all of these blessings are brought about in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The plan of God's redemption, start with me in verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, that is the purpose of redemption, which He set forth in Christ. What He has done in raising Christ from the dead and then seating Him in the heavenlies, so He has done in, a, in us. How has He done this? Chapter 1, verse 20. His great might that He worked in Christ. And Of course, it continues into chapter 2 after this, after this very dark picture in verses 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following after the course of the world. Uh, corrupt in body and mind, were by nature children of wrath. But God expressed His mercy. And how has He expressed us His mercy? He made us alive together with Christ. In verse 6, raised us up with Him and seated Him with us in Him, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Down to verse 13 of chapter 2. But now in Christ you were once far off. So this theology of being in Christ is even continued into chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ. So all of this theology, that, that was just a summary. Obviously, we have the unification of Jew and Gentile in chapter 2 and these prayers and doxologies in chapter 3. All of this theology is summarized by what God has done in Christ. And why is this so important? Because something that is in, because the phrase in represents union or unity to something. Unity or union to or in something. So now, read with me our text in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So as I mentioned, Paul takes all this theology, chapters 1 through 3, and he applies it in chapters 4 through 6. So it's rationale, and then it's living. It's basis, and then it's the outpour of that basis. Teenagers, I've got a question for you. Or kids, I've got a question for you. When was the last time, now be respectful, okay? Don't bump your parents or glare at your parents or be respectful, but when was the last time you asked them a question and the question was why oriented? In other words, why do we have this rule? Or why can't I go to so-and-so's house? Or why I can't I stay up till three in the morning doing what I want to do, or why don't you, whatever. You, you know how the questions go. And this was their very deep and profound and helpful answer. Because I said so. 
All right, parents, how many of you have ever said, because I said so? Everybody. Yep. Everybody. Now, there is a certain extent, parents, teenagers, I'm going to help you out here, all right? There is a certain extent that you shouldn't hear that too much. Why? Parents, you should have rules and reasons that are justifiable, all right? That's all I'm going to say. If you can't explain your reasons, don't expect your kids to understand your reasons, all right? It's not a parenting message. (laughs) Teens are saying amen, right? All right, not a parenting message. But this is the why of because Paul said so, okay? Paul gives us the reasoning. In other words, it's not an unfounded set of rules or way of living. It has very clear reasoning. If you can give a good reason, you are more likely to have a favorable reaction. And so Paul is not starting with a bunch of commands without really rich explanation. Remember I said Paul begins with the the indicative and he goes to the imperative. And it's very important that you understand this. And actually, it's very important that you understand this from a perspective of Christian teaching. say, what are you talking about? If I stand up here as your pastor and only ever preach to you imperatives without indicatives, that sounds like this. Do this and do that and do this and do that and do better. And you go home and you're discouraged. Because you're trying, right? You're trying to do this and you're trying to do that and you're trying to do better. Just saying do in a list of rules without God's theological foundation is discouraging and ineffective. And Paul knows this. Paul understands this. It's like if you give a teenager a bunch of rules with zero compassion and zero rationale, you're probably not going to get a good result. Paul knows the greatest thing that we need for our living is belief and understanding. So, it is with all of that background and context that we have to get chapters 1 through 3, all of this gospel theology that's centered in Christ that we live out in everything chapters 4 through 6. And he makes it plain in verse 1. This morning I want to show you from this passage and in the upcoming passages, because really this is a primary concern of Paul, walking worthy of the Lord, is is this idea that to live out your gospel calling is to live in gospel community. To live out your gospel calling is to live in gospel community. Now, I told you that he's, he's got a, a very certain set of belief and understanding that guides this application. So I said Paul gives all of this theological foundation, and then he gives this application of that foundation, and I said that it's specific, and then it's even more specific in verse 1. So what's going into this instruction in verse 1? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
So let's first of all look together at verse 1, the command and the cause. The command and the cause. This command is a central command. And when I say it is central, I don't just mean it's central in importance, nor uh, do I only mean it is uh, central in the geography of the book, because it, it really is basically smack dab in the middle of the book. I mean, it is central in its, in its hinging point. It's, it's right at the middle, and it's the middle point that brings the two, point, the two aspects of the book together, the theology and the living. And, and to really understand how our gospel calling is, is to live in gospel community, we have to understand the foundation that Paul has been making up until this point. And I think you do, but let's make sure we review. First of all, we reviewed the in Christ. And remember I said that to be in Christ is, is to suppose union. Is, it assumes union. To be in Christ means we are unified to Christ. And Jesus himself uses this terminology. Abide in me. This is all of what Jesus means in John chapter 15, that, that we are in the vine. We are in Christ, and Christ says He is in us. So we are unified to Christ. But what's the other uh, primary aspect of unity in the book? Remember we saw that in chapter 2, that Paul has unified Jew and Gentile. Verse 14 of chapter 2, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, hostility between Jew and Gentile, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man. One, the idea of unity, the idea of union. One new people. Because of one Savior, and that new people are in that one new Savior. Paul is building a foundation of oneness, unity. So his primary concern, heading into chapter 4, is oneness, unity. So I, therefore, on the basis of chapters 1 through 3, probably more immediately chapters 2 and 3, but I really think everything up until this point, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So the command is to walk worthy. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. We've already seen this phrase, prisoner of the Lord. It's how he views his relation and his ministry in relation to Jesus Christ. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Paul considers himself completely indebted and in the service of Jesus Christ, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So the, 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 applic- the specific command is walk worthy. You say, well, what does that mean? As I mentioned, this is the central command. Everything that he's going to explain following verse 1 in chapters 4 through 6 is his, is his explanation of walking worthy. What does walking worthy look like? We'll just read the rest of the book. But it starts here. So Paul has spent 
uh, these three chapters, building the foundation and, and pouring the theological concrete, you might say, so that we can build on it the house of Christian living. And, and, and if you want to press that image even further, this command to walk worthy is, is like one of the load-bearing walls. It's central in the book and it's central to our living. If you take it out, you don't really have a well-constructed house. So this, this command to walk worthy is important in the book, but it's important because it has a certain aspect, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Why would Paul use this idea of walking, walk worthy of the Lord? Now, in the New Testament, the idea of walking worthy or walking in our relationship with Jesus Christ is almost exclusively used by Paul. John uses it uh, very just once in, in, in 1 John. But this idea of walking with the Lord is, 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 Paul uses it very specifically more than any other author. But it has a lot of Old Testament foundation. The idea of walking as our way of living. Proverbs 8.20, I walk in the way of justice. Ecclesiastes 11.9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Micah 6.8, For he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And as I mentioned, in the New Testament, walking is used almost exclusively by Paul. He says this, something very similar in Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2, and Philippians 1.27, to walk in a way that is befitting of the gospel. It looks like the gospel. It sounds like the gospel. We use this phrase in our terminology. Your walk of life. It's synonymous, it's an image for our lifestyle, the way we live, what we do in our life. We've actually already seen it in this letter already. Chapter 2, verse 2. Actually, start verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In sin, you walk in sin. In Christ, you walk worthy of the gospel. In sin, your lifestyle looks like sin. In Christ, your walk looks like Jesus. Sounds like Jesus. Walking has two specific aspects. One of them we overlook, I think. Walking is volitional. You have to choose to walk. If I wanted to go down the steps, I could. I don't know why I'd do that, because I'd have to come back up. You all, you, you walked to your seat. It's volitional. If you wanted to stop walking, you could stop walking. If you have young children, you say keep walking a thousand times a day. Come on, let's keep going. Let's keep walking. Why? Because they have made the choice to stop walking. And you're trying to get somewhere. It is usually when you don't need to go somewhere that they are very reticent to run around, run around like crazy, right? You get my point. It's, it's simple. You have to make choices to walk worthy. 
So it's volitional, and it is directional. You walk certain directions. So, where are you going spiritually? It's volitional, and it's directional. Walking is a choice, and walking takes you somewhere. When you walk in sin, you'll end up in sin. The further and further you'll get. When you walk worthy of the gospel, you'll not only live out Christ and live in Christ, but you'll live for Christ. But notice, this command has a foundation. He doesn't just say walk worthy, because remember, Paul is not just trying to give you a bunch of rules that if you follow, you'll be a good Christian. He's giving you a, set, a standard of living that is based in belief. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul is communicating here a standard. Now, when I say standard, don't get all nervous that I'm talking about like, like legalistic rules that you have this standard and that standard and you have to looks like this and it's this long. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he sets the bar for our living. By the way, the bar is set pretty high. Walk worthy of what? Your bank account? Walk worthy of your happiness? Walk worthy of your emotions? Walk worthy of your relationships? The walking is rooted in your calling. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what is this calling? Well, we've seen it. Chapters 1 through 3. You were called before the foundation of the world in love, predestined to adoption as sons. That's a pretty high bar. You were called by God to be one of His redeemed, bought out of sin. You were called, and as you were called by God, one, chapter 1, verse 4, His election. As you were called, so you were forgiven, and that means you stopped doing the things that He forgave you from. But it's very, it's very specific. It's even more specific than that. Look at me at chapter 1, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? So you have a hope to which you have been called. And how is this hope possible? Because of the gospel. And because of this hope that you've been, you've been given, you've been called to, you have a spiritual inheritance that awaits. What I'm saying is what Paul is saying implicitly. Your calling is a high calling. So don't settle for low standards. Don't buy the sins of the world thinking they'll be fun. Don't settle for a standard that you create in yourself. If I can do this and be this, then I will be good enough and I will be happy and I will perform at my level and I'll be happy with myself. You know that if you live your life trying to be happy with yourself, you will never be happy. Right? 
because we're flawed and there's always something to be unhappy about. Always. But if you live your life in submission to the gospel that has transformed you, the hope of your calling, then Christ calls you to a standard of living and equips you to live out that standard. So don't settle for a low bar. Remember in chapter 2, the the phrase I kept using, and I used it very intentionally to set up where we were going, is that in chapter 1, Paul begins this incredible theology, all we have in Christ, and in in chapter 2, he begins to specify it even further, or even closer, he, he narrows the scope. And the phrase I kept using is that he's funneling all of this theology into the church, because that's what he does. He funnels all of this theology into the church. The chapter 2 is made very clear. Chapter 3, the church is the mystery of Christ that, he, that Christ has, has completed. And now he's going to funnel that theology into chapter 4, into something very specific. So I therefore, prison of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with, patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So now he's going to take all this theology and he's going to take this command and apply it one specific way to the culture of the church. So he's dealt with the theology of the church, the gospel theology in chapter 1, and he's dealt with the unification of the church in chapter 2, and he's dealt with the mystery of the church in chapter 3. He's going to come back to the mystery of the church. But now he's going to point out what the gospel looks like in the church. So point number one, the central command and cause. Point number two, church culture or the culture of the church. What does this theology look like And where does he primarily orient this theology? He takes his theology and he funnels it into one primary sphere. And it's the sphere that we talked about last week, verse 21 of chapter 3. To him be glory in the church. How do we do that? By living out the gospel in the church. And what is the first expression of gospel living in the church? Well, what he's been talking about this whole time in chapters 1 through 3. Unity. Unity in Christ and unified to one another. I want to say this before we go on. You didn't come to church to be by yourself. And when you leave church this morning, when you leave corporate worship, you don't go home to, go, to be by yourself either. Because this is not an event center where we hold worship on Sundays. This is a community, a household of faith, a home for brothers and sisters. So what does this unity look like? Well, it looks like three primary aspects of self-sacrifice. It looks like three primary aspects of self-sacrifice. First of all, humility, humility, This word has the idea of lowliness of self. It's a lowly self-perspective. 
Now listen, I'm not saying insecurity. I'm not saying like I'm a loser all the time. and I, I'm not saying feeling bad for yourself. I'm saying you have a modest view of yourself, a realistic view of yourself in relation to the gospel. Because you know what creates unity more than anything? The understanding of who you were before Christ and now who you are in Christ. Recognizing what grace really is. So when we understand the gospel and when we live worthy of the gospel, this is fascinating. One of the first aspects of true unity, the outpouring of the gospel living in the community of the church, is having a low view of self. It only makes sense. When you see the heights of the gospel, you will see the depths of your sin. And you will have a view of yourself that responds realistically. The heights of the gospel create a lowly view of self. This is what Paul means when he speaks of Christ's thinking in Philippians chapter, three, chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Listen, verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ. Paul, through the Scriptures, gives you a window into Jesus' brain in Philippians chapter 2. And you know what he says is in there? Humility. Others are just more important. Others are just more significant. So when I say a lowly view of yourself, I don't mean a self-denigrating, self-deprecating pity sort of feeling, but a, a truly low view of yourself in relation to the gospel and in relation to the needs of others and in relation to the glory of God. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Do you know why churches get destroyed for really stupid reasons? Because people think they're better and more important, and more special, and more privileged, and smarter than they really are. You know what's important about the church? Jesus Christ. Gentleness. First, application, self-sacrifice. Secondly, this application, or the, the second expression of self-sacrifice is gentleness. And I'm actually going to handle gentleness and patience together because they have a very similar idea. So gentleness is a disposition, but in the original language, they, had, they actually had very similar root ideas. So gentleness is a disposition, whereas patience is a motivation. So actually what we see that Paul is doing here is he's giving us the idea of gentleness in relation to patience patience. You say, well, what does that look like? You'll see it presented together often in the Scriptures. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, which is, which is, synonym, which is similar to, to gentleness, and patience. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5 provides a wonderful filter for how we should deal with, for, with brothers in the church who are lesser mature spiritually. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So no matter what category of person one, one might be spiritually, you're supposed to be patient with everybody. And as I said, these two words are very similar in their, in their grammar. They have a very similar technical meaning. But they differ in their look and feel. Gentleness is the disposition of patience. This only makes sense. You're not going to respond in word, body, and emotion with gentleness if you do not respond spiritually with patience. You never hear of someone say, you know, that person is really impatient, but man, is he gentle. You know what I'm saying? He's always flying off the handle, but he does it so nicely. They go together. Because if you're a patient person that the gospel is working in, he's working in you patience, the Spirit is growing in you patience, you respond with gentleness. Now, of course, this is, this is unilaterally applicable to all aspects of our life. So if you're a parent, you're probably thinking parenting. If you're a spouse, you're probably thinking spouse. If you, I mean, you're working, you're, the, the, the application here is broad. But I want to make sure we get the, the specific application that Paul is working towards. Because actually, Paul's going to talk about families later. Right now, he's still talking about the church. And even when he talks about families, he's talking about families in relation to the church. So he's talking about humility, not primarily in your home. Now, obviously it applies, but here he's talking about humility and gentleness patience, and patience primarily in the church. As the church is the sphere of his glory, so the church is the sphere of gospel living. And the, pri- and the first expressions of gospel living... That he, that he in the, under the inspiration of the Spirit, records here humility, gentleness, and patience. A patient humility. Listen, when we talk about humility, and we talk about gentleness, and we talk about patience, I want you to hear me on this. This is a pastoral concern that I have. And when I say pastoral, I don't necessarily just mean in here. I'm talking about the church at large. What I see, trends I see in Christianity. We just read together that we, that to live out the gospel means we're to live in humility and gentle patience. I am incredibly concerned with ministries that are built on brashness and a domineering spirit. Because usually those brash, domineering ministries call it stuff like courage and steadfastness, and standing for the truth. How might you present Jesus if you say what He says, technically true, but communicate a tone that doesn't look like and sound like Jesus Christ? What kind of Jesus are you presenting? It's an aspect of the gospel to walk worthy in the gospel in the context of the church to reflect humility and patience and gentleness. 
beware of movements that intentionally play on extremities and polarities and unsanctified passion and then try to call it gospel zeal. A gospel message with a distinctly ungospel spirit is just sin hiding behind Jesus. Beware of ministries that are dominating and brash and harsh and try to justify it with truth. So it's easy to talk about what's out there, and I think we should. This is a trend, and it concerns me. What do we think about the gospel here? That's the question we have to ask. Speak the truth. Make sure you say it God's way. It's easy to talk about what's out there, and I think we should be alert to it, but what about what's in here? Now, I praise the Lord that right now, I think we've got a unified church. And I think the Lord will continue that. As long as we preach the Word and unify around the right things, the Scriptures and truth and how do, we, how do we reproduce truth in the lives of people, I think as long as we're around the right things, we'll have a unified church. But in your relations to people, is there patience, gentleness, humility? Do you come to church to show off? Dress the right way, talk the right way, look the right way, sound the right way. I'm a good Christian because good Christians fill in the blank. God doesn't care if you give in the offering more than so-and-so if you're selfish when you do it. I'll, I'll be close to these people. I'll have relationships with these people. But those people... Bless their hearts. I mean, they're just, and you can call it whatever you want, they're just different. We have different gifts. We have different interests. Did Jesus just die for the people that are like you? Did His blood atone for the people that you're comfortable with? And His love is more reserved for people like you than other people? Bearing burdens with one another in love. Now again, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of a church that I think does this really well. Now, caution. Don't, don't settle. Don't stop. Don't do it for yourself. Don't do it to, as eye-pleasers to, to, to look like you're godly, to look like you're compassionate. Keep doing it for the right reasons, but I'm thankful to be in a place where we bear burdens with one another. What an incredible place the church is. What an incredible place the church is. You could bear burdens with someone that you know, or you could actually end up by the ministry of encouragement, by speaking truth, bearing burdens with people you don't know, that they don't, you don't even know that they have. I shared with our Sunday night, and our Sunday night time a few weeks ago, and let me just say, if, if you really, if you really want in-depth, specific application. Most of that happens on a Sunday night. It's a really sweet time together. But I shared with our people a few weeks ago on a Sunday night that there, there have been difficult things here in ministry. Ministry is hard, and it's hard for every pastor in different ways. And um, Pastors don't really, it's not like we can talk about it. And I share with our people that I can think of two times in my ministry when someone stopped by my office for no reason 
and just said, I'm praying for you and I appreciate you. And when they left, I legitimately thought, I can keep going. I can keep doing this. You have no idea the burden you may be bearing with someone just by stopping, giving them a few moments, and encouraging them. What about the burdens you do know? What are you doing to help lift those, to help bear those? That we, as the people of God, bear with one another our burdens, that we are not alone. A Christian who is truly alone, who feels truly alone, needs church. So I have compassion for it, but what I don't have is compassion for a Christian who feels truly alone and feels sorry for themselves and refuses to engage in the community and stays isolated and then lives in sin or does whatever they want to do and gets upset at the church for it, thinks that Jesus isn't enough. The church bears one another's burdens. And if you look with me thirdly and finally at verse 3, he continues this idea of unity, and he just makes it very clear that this is what he's working towards in verse 3. So in verse 3, if you look me together at a commitment to community, a commitment to community, eager to maintain. Eager to maintain. That word eager has the idea of excited, you get energy from. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's look at the first aspect in verse 3, spiritual solidarity. Solidarity, just another word for community or unity here. So spiritual solidarity. As I've already mentioned, this is Paul's primary application, and it's his primary concern coming off chapters 1 through 3. I don't want to argue for what he doesn't say, but I think it is interesting that after he's talked about the gospel, listen, I'm not saying don't do these things. I just think that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's interesting to see what happens first. After he's talked about the gospel, after he says, we need glory, God's going to get glory in the church. After he's, talked about, after he's talked about in chapter 2 that God's brought Jew and Gentile together through Christ, these incredible gospel truths, that he's, that he's chosen sinners before the foundation of the world, that he's adopting children into a family. He doesn't say, so go witness to people. That's not the first thing he says. He doesn't say, sell all you have and be a missionary. Again, if the Lord leads you to do these things, Awesome. But what's his primary concern? Be excited to participate in the unity of the church. Because this is what the gospel does. It perpetuates union to Christ. And union to Christ means union to one another. He doesn't say, go fight the hungry and stand for social justice. He doesn't say, because of all this gospel, create evangelistic programs. Paul's primary concern, after spending three chapters in the heavenlies of the gospel, is how the gospel creates a culture of unity. 
And I think this clearly implies some application for us. First, first application, our truth is our only basis for unity. Did you hear what I just said? Truth is our only basis for unity. Government, politics, social justice movements, they're insufficient to unify. I mean, if you have any questions about that, just look at the, look at the division in those movements. The gospel alone is sufficient to bring broken people to God and fallen people together. And any basis for unity that isn't God's mission and God's power is a human mission with human power and people will never agree and people have no power. So it will fail. You say, well, why do churches fight all the time then? Because they're trying to unify around the wrong things. When, you, when your, your children fight, you appeal to something bigger than that which they're fighting about. Or you should. So when my children fight over a toy, you know what the, my primary concern is? Not the toy. We say things like, but you could share and show selflessness. You remember you had a turn already with that. Or that belongs to them, and so you can show kindness. Or that doesn't, doesn't belong to you, and you can show kindness. You get what I'm saying. You appeal to the greater purpose than the problem itself. The greater purpose is what God is doing in the church. And when the people of God fight, we appeal to that which brought us together, which is the gospel, because it alone has the power to bring people together and keep people together. So we stand for the gospel and we stand side by side with the gospel against anything that is not gospel. And second application, any other basis for unity will fail. Any other basis for unity will fail. If it's not explicitly gospel and biblically doctrinal, it will end up dividing people. This, listen, this is so important. This is why we need to know the truth. Do you know why you should read your Bible? You will fight the wrong battles the wrong way if you don't. Do you know why churches need to orient themselves around the Scripture? They will fight for the wrong missions in the wrong way if they don't. If we know what is most important, the truth, we will not settle for less or fight over what is less important. This is what we see churches unifying. This is where we see them fail to unify around the wrong things all of the time. Theological movements, usually just old heresies stated a different way. Celebrity pastors, most of whom end up failing anyway. Their style of music, their preference of hymns. Listen, if these were matters of first importance, they would be here. Paul is not arguing on the basis of these things to unify. He is arguing on the basis of truth. What is gospel? And this last part is very important. 
the bond of peace. The bond of peace. Literally, this word bond is something that fastens together or joins together and keeps together. It literally has the idea of a fastener. So the peace that the Spirit is cultivating in the church is what binds this unity together. Now remember, we've already seen this in chapter 2. He's torn down the hostility by making what? Peace. So the peace that brought us together is the peace that keeps us together. It fastens us. I do some, by way of conclusion, I do some woodwork when I have time. I wish I had more time. I enjoy working with wood. Uh, Maybe you do too, and maybe you have in your garage, like I do, something, a little bottle of that white magic stuff called Tight Bond, right? That's the good wood glue. I mean, Gorilla wood glue is fine, but Tight Bond is where it's at. It's also cheaper, right? It's, It's the bond that brings the glue and the wood together, you, you glue both sides of the wood so the glue doesn't just bond to the wood, it, it, the glue bonds to the glue. And I love taking different pieces of wood that are they're different, different uh, kinds of wood and different colors of wood and putting them together and, and treating them down and sanding them down and carving them down so that when you really get to that perfect bond, it looks like they were never divided to begin with. You know a really good wood bond is when you get that straight cut and it bonds perfectly and it looks like there was never a division. It looks like they were always together. Do you know what God has intended from the beginning of time to create a bond that looks like it's always been together and when we pursue peace and we fasten We're fastened by that peace, and we cleave and hold to one another. Do you know what God will show the world? The beauty of the gospel through the people of God. 